Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 49 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Classes are over. Classes are over, Steve. We've got, like they said, uh, like Sticks said once, we've got too much time on our hands. Uh, well, we can only get into mischief if that's true. This is true. Uh, actually, we don't have too much time on our hands. We've got a lot to do. We've we got, got a lot to we do. we got to write exams. We've got to grade exams. Wait. we got to produce this podcast. What? We have to gr- exams? Yeah, bad news, man. Bad news. We do but, exams. But, but, but no. <laughs> uh, yeah, so hopefully none of my students are listening to this podcast because you should be studying for your other exams. That's right. Put this put this down right now. Because we're last, right? We're not till next Thursday. Next Thursday, both both of our classes will be taking the constitutional law exam. Uh, I'm just going to say right now, Doe versus um, uh, Mattis, not on the exam. Not on the exam. In fact, I suspect nothing we're going to talk about here will be on the exam. So students, please go back to Yeah, study. seriously. No, there's nothing to see here. Um, so Bobby, uh, it is, I don't know, Tuesday, December 12th. This is, we're recording earlier than usual because we don't have class. That's right. Normally we'd be busier right now, so we're free. We're free. What's yeah. going on? Oh, uh, not too much. Um, there's a few things to discuss, but one of them is not Section 702 renewal. We we got 19 days till the expiration, T minus 19, and I think uh, our prediction that what's going to happen is amidst all the tax bill and uh, government shutdown stuff, they're going to have some kind of must move appropriation, uh, some kind of Last budget minute. related yeah, thing, gotta pass. And, and this will be attached to it by the leadership, and it'll go through. So responsible. Prob- probably the Senate bill. I'm still predicting. Love it. I mean, that's just as I said last week. It's such a responsible yeah, sorry, way. The to Senate do... Intelligence Bill. Senate such intelligence an inte- such a responsible way to do major surveillance reform. Hey, well, you know, I think the point is this isn't major surveillance reform. <sighs> you got me there. All right, <laughs> so we're not talking about 702. What are we talking about today? Well, let's see. We've got um, the, the the tragedy. The, it could have been much worse yesterday in New York. Um, the Port Authority bus uh, terminal is actually the passageway between the 8th Avenue uh, station I've been and there. Times Square. We've, we, we have. Six blocks from my parents' apartment. So this uh, there was an, a, a pipe bomb that, um, that could have been much worse, and it precipitated uh, something we've talked about before in the show, this recurring theme when there is a terrorism incident in the United States. Senator Graham in particular is, is quick to talk about this being a situation where we should use military detention for interrogation purposes, and you and I have have pretty well settled <laughs> views on this. We'll rehearse them. Yep. Um, and Senator Graham, who by the way I think is bucking for Secretary of State. Um, actually, that would be pretty interesting. Um, if you've noticed his uh, his non sort of Senator Guantanamo tweets lately have been very complimentary of the president. No, his his it's been widely observed that um, he has become very. Uh, uh, accommodating in some ways in some of his communications. I hadn't, I hadn't connected that to the possibility of Secretary of State, but I actually kind of like that idea. I think he'd probably be pretty good at it. I think he might be effective. So no, I, I, don't, I don't expect you to like anybody who might be nominated. I, you know, come on. I don't think that's fair. I can think of plenty of people who would theoretically be a Republican Secretary of State who I could live with. And, and that, that Trump would nominate? Well, you know, that's a separate question. That's that's the question I'm answering. <laughs> All right, so we'll talk about we'll talk about that issue. We'll then uh, check in with Mitt Romney it, for Secretary of State. You know, I think uh, oh, I think back to that picture. I know uh, the dinner picture. All right, so should, Mitt should not have gone to that dinner. Yep. Anyways, Doe v. Mattis or ACLU v. Mattis the still John going. Doe. It's like yep. the Energizer Bunny. It is. Um, so we've had further progress. There was a hearing yesterday, and we will. Uh, neither of us have seen a transcript, but we've we've read what reporting there's been. So we can repeat the hearsay. We can repeat. We'll repeat some hearsay, and we'll even analyze it. By the way, do you think our listeners even remember the Energizer Bunny? Uh, it keeps going yeah. and going yeah. and going. That'd be yeah. I suspect so. We've All got right. we've got a wide ranging demographic. I think in our yeah, probably tilts older. I don't know. I actually think we got a good spectrum. All right. All right. Listeners, so, identify yourself. ACLU versus Mattis. Um, and Bobby, maybe we can talk about what we think is going to happen next. Yes, absolutely. What's what's the next step there? Then um, we're going to talk about this uh, very cool story that Charlie Savage and Eric Schmidt did in the New York Times on Sunday, um, giving us the latest glimpses into the, uh, the, the transition, or maybe it's not a transition, away from President Obama's... Uh, policy guidance on use of force outside of areas of active hostilities, um, and what is the rule going to be under Trump? And, and the particular focal point here is uh, operations in Somalia. So mm-hmm. we'll talk about that story and its implications 
Steve, I think that naturally leads into Bill Castle's speech. Yeah. Uh, what are we going to do there? So Bill Castle, the acting general counsel of the Department of Defense, gave a speech in New York last night. I think we'll just talk about like whether we thought anything important came out of it. I, I didn't. I didn't see any big you know, sort of shifts in anything other than just reaffirmation of views. I think, Bobby, we already expected this administration to have. Oh, well, and, and I would go further and say what we have here is a, is a whole bunch of continuity with the Obama yep. administration. Yep. And, um, and it'll fi- file that under the theme that uh, I remember when President Obama came into office, there was this expectation of radical change. And then in uh, in 09 and 10, one of the interesting themes, I think Jack Goldsmith was sort of very early on, prominent uh, advancing was, you know what, there's going to be a lot of continuity here, despite all the rhetoric of change, um, and query whether some of that will be true here as well. Yep, I think that's right. Um, And I think our last substantive piece will be new military commission charges, because, you know, the military commissions, I mean, Bobby, they've just been going like gangbusters, and so we might as well have more cases in the military commissions. We've got charges, uh, updated charges against Tom Bali and two uh, Jamaat Islamaya colleagues, these two Malaysian guys um, that we'll talk about in a minute. Um, And the the charges, uh, to some extent, repeat uh, an, an earlier charge sheet we saw that was Hambali specific. There's there's some interesting expansion. This will give us an occasion to talk a little bit about what kind of charges are and are not controversial when uh, presented in any war crime True. setting, commissions or otherwise. Uh, and then we're going to wrap up with some uh, real frivolity, grade C frivolity. Um, we've been doing a movies theme, Steve. Uh, we're going to we're going to go in a new direction with this one. Staying with movies, though terrible movies that we can't uh, turn off can't turn off movies that we love even though they're we concede they're awful movies that we're embarrassed to admit we like exactly and we're going to embarrassingly admit that we really are so stay so stay stay for the end of that listeners um but let's start off the top with obviously the news from yesterday the attempted uh pipe bombing incident in new york Right. So the, the fellow uh, Akayed Ula has been identified as the bomber. He had gone into the passageway between the 8th Avenue bus station and Times Square station. Uh, he had chosen the spot, Steve, because there's, he said, because there's Christmas posters there. Um, he, war, the war on Christmas is real. Well, he, he was he was trying, you know, people are drawing the comparison to the repeated attempts to uh, bomb Christmas markets in Germany. So targeting Christians or, or at least Christian symbols. Um, choosing, it, he's, he's expressed that the reason he was doing this at all was uh, ostensible retaliation against U.S. bombing of Islamic State targets in Syria and elsewhere. Steve, what's interesting about that is here I am talking about all these things that he has said, these inculpatory Whoa. admissions, these confessions, these it details. It must be because he's been subjected to military detention and coercively interrogated. Amazingly enough, not. He's in law enforcement <laughs> custody. He's at Bellevue because he... His pipe bomb was strapped to his body, and he's uh, he's presumably uh, pretty badly burned. So he's he's in law enforcement custody in a healthcare facility. Um, Senator Graham went on CNN and Fox News radio and said, which was by the way very ecumenical to hit both of those, um, and said, and "This is the quote from Fox News: uh, Hold this man as an expected enemy combatant. I like that phrase, expected." enemy combatant. Hold him as long as necessary to figure out who he is, what he did, and why. The last thing I want this guy to hear anytime soon is you have the right to remain silent. I don't want him to remain silent. So, Steve, we've talked previously about identical scenarios in which the, the ideas put out there put him in military detention, but the, but the reason that is being said, it's, not, it's clearly not some idea that the, the civilian courts can't prosecute him. The disposition won't detain him. We need to use military detention to keep him off the streets. Rather, it's entirely about Miranda, presentment, interrogation. So um, g- give us your views on, um, you know, how is this, how should this work? I think the way it worked, right? I mean, so the, the suspect was immediately taken into custody by the New York Police Department. I think the FBI was quickly brought in, um, right? There was presumably some amount of interrogation before Bobby, I suspect, he was Mirandized, right? Well, yeah, some of the reporting says that, you know, immediately on the scene, they were, of course, uh, in whoever the responding officers were, were asking questions, and he was answering right. on the spot. Right, and listen, if you're going to have a public... So two things about those questions, right? First, um, if you're the responding officers, you don't give a crap at that moment about what's going to be admissible at trial, right? You are dealing with an apparent serious security threat. You just want to find out how sustained it is. Are there other bombs? Did he just leave a backpack 
right at the other end of the of the walkway. Are, are you saying, Steve, that these are questions designed to secure public safety, immediate threats? Well, so to what I'm saying safety? is, whatever you think of the Quarles public safety exception to Miranda, yeah. it's worth reminding everybody that Miranda is just an exclusionary rule, and so nothing stops the officer in that moment from asking those questions without regard to whether whatever the defendant suspect says is subsequently admissible against him in court. So when this topic comes up, I like to disentangle two different ideas. Um, one is the Quarles public safety exception to Miranda. The other is is the idea that, well, who cares whether there's quarrels or not? And who cares whether we comply with Miranda or not? So let me, let me talk about each of those really quickly. So Miranda, as you say, it's a prophylactic rule uh, designed to ensure that uh, interrogation statements are admissible at trial or, or that unwarned interrogation statements are inadmissible at mm-hmm. trial. But it doesn't mean you can't ask questions. It, it attaches a penalty that only arises if you want to try to introduce the statements at trial. Now, in a case like this, where you literally catch someone in the act, um, there there's no actual strong evidentiary need here. The, right. the FBI doesn't need to collect these statements so that the Southern District prosecutors later on will be able to convict him. This guy will obviously be convictable. He'll probably plead. He'll have to plead. Or if he goes to trial, it'll be the easiest case ever, even if they never try to introduce his confessions and other statements that are inculpatory. Um, so that said, sometimes you do later on want to be able to admit them. That's when that and only that scenario presents quarrels. Quarrels is a Supreme Court case that says that when the when the officer on the scene is asking immediate questions about public safety that are designed to secure the officer safety or the public safety, um, even though there's no Miranda warning, um, nonetheless the answers could be admitted at trial. Here. We don't even get to that question. That's not terribly important. So whether the questions uh, exceeded the quarrels boundaries or not may not actually matter. And now this gets to the to the counterpoint to Senator Graham. Like Senator Graham, I think that we need to question this guy. And if he says, well, I don't want to talk to you without a lawyer, um, I think that there's some extent for some initial period of time in which it's uh, proper for the Joint Terrorism Task Force or the High Value Interrogation Group if the HIG happens to be brought in on something like this, although there's been reporting recently that the HIG is not really being brought in on stuff anymore. But set that aside, if it's the JTTF FBI interrogators, they ought to ask substantial questions mm-hmm. about, you know, how did you become radicalized? Who who else might you be working with? That sort of thing to identify other imminent public safety threats. A lot of that would probably be covered by quarrels if they decided they needed to introduce it later trial, but that doesn't really matter. So, so to me, this idea that you've got to put him in military custody in order not to have to give him Miranda warnings and not to have to stop asking questions when he tells you he wants to uh, no longer talk. I, I think that misunderstands what it is FBI gets to do totally. here. And in any event, this guy is, the, the proof's already in the pudding. This guy apparently is talking at some length and in an inculpatory way. Um, the harder question arises after a day or two goes by. Yep. And the question of presentment arises. And there, the, the reason presentment means, presentment's referring to the arraignment, taking, taking this person before the judge, the federal judge, probably a magistrate judge in the Southern District of New York. And if this guy's in the hospital, then the judge may actually, it may be a virtual appearance, the judge or may the actually come to the hospital. Yep. This sort of thing has happened in other such cases. Um, the reason this is an important point is, at that point, it's no longer just the FBI in control of the situation, deciding whether they're going to just keep asking questions without a lawyer present. The judge is going to ask the person whether they want appointed counsel. Uh, the guy may well say he does. The judge at that point has a supervisory control that that muddies the waters there. So I think for, for Senator Graham and his, his position that in cases like this, we need to default to enemy combatant detention, um, their case is strongest when there's some reason to think that the amount of interrogation that needs to go on needs to be protracted. Now here, again, the guy's talking. I don't think the case has been made. Uh, even if the case was made, Steve... Uh, there would be a habeas proceeding. And, <laughs> Maybe. Uh, well, yeah. So in this case, we know his name. So <laughs> presumably there would be a habeas proceeding. And how would that likely go for the government so if he was I'm, in military custody? I mean, I think we talked about this before, right? That that even assuming that there was a clearer connection to ISIS than just I was inspired by ISIS, right? Even assuming that he was a member of ISIS, and there's no evidence to suggest he is, there's still the open questions about whether the AUMF covers ISIS and whether for someone who is 
lawfully present in the United States, there are due process reasons why either the government needs more of a showing or at least the government needs more evidence to justify such detention. Okay, so even if it is the sort of the strongest case for military detention, which is, it turns out there's a good reason to think he's an actual operative on behalf of the Islamic Sent State. Sent here to engage in an attack. Right, right. If you had that scenario, this would precipitate a... Uh, something the government for many years has sought to avoid, which is a judicial ruling on whether the Islamic State is within the scope of the 2001 or 2002 AUMFs. We're going to talk about that, by the way, in a moment with Bill Castle's speech. Yep. Um, that that would be extraordinary to sort of turn this situation into a, a, a forum that presents that question to the court for the first time. Totally. Um, and then there would be further questions about the status of someone who's who's inside the United States and what complexities that raises about detention of, of U.S. persons or persons lawfully present in the United States. So that seems to take on a lot of uh, problems you might not want. Um, but of course, here, you know, the the early smart money says this guy's uh, clearly inspired or or wanting to act in support of the Islamic State, but there's there's as yet been no hint or whisper that this is someone who's actually sent here as an agent or operative. Um, of course, one might say from the other point of view saying, yeah, well, you know, that's the way it looks right now, but what do we know? Let's let's interrogate for a while and let's see the actual story. Why did he come here? When did he come but here? But either way, I, mean, I think the critical point is for Senator Graham, you don't need military detention to accomplish that, that policy outcome. Yeah, I, th- I think you don't. So I think here's where it gets hard, because I do think there's a hard issue embedded here. Uh, with these terrorism cases where there may be a connection to someone against whom we claim to be in an armed conflict. Um, It is clear to me that in the immediate 24 to 48 hour window, um, law enforcement actually does have and does use uh, a lot of discretion to ask questions without respect to giving Miranda warnings, without insisting that counsel be present. And in the right case, they can and do do that. Um, And that's as it should be. It gets hard if you have a situation where the person's not talking initially, where there may be more red flags about possible outside direction and control, and then you get to the point of presentment and you get appointed counsel, and then it does become more of a regular law enforcement process. I think if if and when you have a case like that, and this doesn't seem to be that case, then I think you have the hard question that, that is of interest to Senator Graham. Um, and you know we've been very fortunate not to confront that hard case. True, yet. true. And I think, but I think the key is you know there's also a boy who cried wolf problem that if Senator Graham keeps saying this about every case, he might miss the actual cases where there's any stronger of a claim for that for that disposition. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, as just a matter of tactics, you ought to. I think it's it's fair to raise these questions. It'd be what I would like to see, frankly, from his statements on this is to emphasize the importance of of asking the intelligence collection questions, acknowledging that the FBI can can and does and is doing that, and then flagging that you could get a hard case, and there's no reason to think this is it, you could get a hard case where there's a question about whether, um, you know, a week into this, whether this is a person who may actually be an Islamic State fighter sent here, and we need to have a different approach in that case. Yeah. All right, so I think we beat that into the ground. Let's, let's beat something else into the ground. ACLV v. Mattis is Spe- back. Well, speaking of, speaking of hard questions about the scope of the AUMF as applied to ISIS. And, and uh, access to habeas and using detention. Uh. Here's one where they are holding the U.S. person in detention. Of course, in this case, he was captured overseas in the combat zone, turned over to the United States. He's been three months now in U.S. military custody. It's John Doe. Still don't know who it is. Steve, what was the hearing about that occurred yesterday? Well, so uh, yesterday's hearing, the second hearing that Judge Chutkin has held in this case so far, was about the more specific question of, Bobby, her power to order some kind of jurisdictional discovery. Um, The government has claimed that she can't because any such discovery would not be directed to the government, but rather to a third party who is not a party to the proceeding. There's a lovely element of circularity, right, to that argument. Right, yeah, that that didn't hold much water. You know, they they have an array of arguments. They also say... uh, that a habeas proceeding doesn't even entail jurisdictional discovery. I thought that part of the brief was pretty unpersuasive. Yeah. And that Harris v. Nelson, uh, case they cite, um, as the ACLU's responsive brief points out, does seem to actually point the other way. It's true that the rules of civil procedure don't uh, compel or, or clearly provide that authority for a habeas proceeding. But the habeas statute, Harris v. Nelson itself, seems to indicate right. Uh, so it I, does. I mean, I think I think the government is really just playing out the string at this point. Now that begs the question: Well, so when is Judge Chuckin actually going to rule, and is the government going to accept that ruling, or are they going to try to appeal it? Right. So, so she said she was going to rule quickly. 
she and I have different definitions of quickly. True, but you know, it hasn't been 24 hours yet, so uh, I think it's. I think it's. So okay. it hasn't been 24 hours since yesterday's hearing, right? When it, she said she was going to rule quickly. Right. It has been two months and a week since this case was filed. It has been three months today since John Doe allegedly punitively turned himself into the SDF forces. Well, you know, I agree that it took way too long for this to get to the stage where there was a hearing. The hearing should have come very quickly on a more accelerated schedule, but now it's occurred. Um, the reporting, uh, we have not seen the transcript, but the reporting suggests that she expressed real in- incredulity that the government was uh, taking the position that it did, either that she had no power to, to probe into this. And she seems to clearly recognize the point you and I have both been hammering, which is that whatever else one thinks about when habeas access begins, and I, I think we probably disagree about how quickly it begins, but I think we both agree it's not at the point of capture right. in this situation. Right. And, and also that no one can really say what the precise day or hour count is. It's a it's sort of a sliding scale. That's right. Um, but that you and I both think three months in is is past <laughs> past point. Uh, ben Wittes agrees with you. He, he has posted. You, you had to enjoy Ben's post on Lawfare this morning where he, he says, all right, all right, Steve's been taunting me about this. I eat crow. I'm now concerned too. So we're all pretty much on the same page. And that's 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 quite that's, a, that's, that's quite a side. Th- I gotta say that's that's a coalition of views here. I, I suppose there's some who listen to uh, what I've been saying on this and think, well, you know, Chesney's kind of a, a lefty on on this stuff. That's no, you. No, that's not that's not <laughs> the case, folks. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think that what's going on here is attempting to establish. Uh, Intentionally or not, it's it's it will tend to attempt to establish a dangerous principle that at right. the end of the day, it's up to the government to decide when it's ready for the case to be a habeas case. So it can't what, be the answer. So let's assume that sometime this week, right, Judge Chutkin issues a ruling where she says, one, I have the power to conduct limited jurisdictional discovery in order to determine if Doe wants a habeas petition to proceed and wants the ACLU to proceed as his next friend. Two, I am therefore ordering the government to ask these, whatever, three, four questions of John Doe and to do so in conditions where you can swear under penalty of perjury that there's no coercion, right, and to return the answers to me, yada, yada, yada. Um, Does the government appeal? I think they at least ask. They will move for, for, is it a 1292B certification? So uh, some, as, as, to quote my friend Steve, some Fed Court's nerdistry, <laughs> uh, interlocutory we made appeal. We 22 minutes into our podcast today without Fed Court's nerdistry. It is on now, and I'm going to deliver some of it, and you're going to correct me because I'll get it wrong. No, you won't. But suffice to say that uh, the ordinary default rule for appeals is when the uh, district court process is final and complete, then you take the full set of issues you accumulated on the way, that's what you go on appeal with. Interlocutory appeal is when you try to do it midstream because something has just happened and you want to try to get the appellate court to intervene. Um, the, so federal law, Steve, is fair to say generally hostile to interlocutory appeal, but there is a mechanism where the issue might be dispositive. But here's the catch. You've got to get the district judge to agree to allow the interlocutory appeal, basically a certification. Yep. And so Chutkin would have to rule against the government, and they'd have to go to Chutkin and say, all right, we want you to pave the way for us to go to the Second Circuit with this. D.C. Circuit? DC, I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry. I got my, I was so New York focused. D.C. Circuit. You're, you're rolling. I was going. I was. Um, so, so, you know, and let's just be clear. I mean, such a certification request is saying, dear Judge Chutkin, Yes, this guy's already been in custody for three months. Yes, you've just ordered us to find out if he wants to file a habeas petition. But we'd like to take some more time to, you know, walk kind of slowly upstairs to the D.C. Circuit and ask them if you had the power to tell us to do this. I suspect they might write the motion a different <laughs> way. <laughs> they, they might say we would like to take an expedited, uh, quick Right. You know, this is a dispositive question because if, if Judge, if you're wrong and we're right about this, that'll end this case right yep. here. Yep. And that, that, I think, actually does fit the definition. So it, it'll depend on her disposition. Right, she, she has discretion. Yeah, she has total discretion on this. It's not appealable yep. if she denies right. the certification. Now, the alternative for the government is to seek a writ of mandamus, right? To yeah. sort of, so this is actually in a normal, non-ridiculous fact pattern. If a district court issues an extremely problematic discovery order, which is in effect 
loosely analogous to what this would be from the government's yeah. perspective. Um, there's no means of appealing a discovery order, and so the the standard procedure would be to seek a writ of mandamus, right? That the to argue to the court of appeals that the district court is exceeding its jurisdiction by even ordering this much discovery. The problem with the writ of mandamus, as we have discussed on this podcast before, is that the D.C. Circuit has a uniquely high standard threshold for a mandamus where it's basically never appropriate on a question of first impression. And mm. that is – whatever yeah. you think the right answer is. Right. This is a question, this of, is first a question of first impression. This is why it's really important that you can characterize this not as a run-of-the-mill discovery order but rather as an, uh, an issue that is an ultimate question, right? Mm-hmm. And if it were to go the other way, it would actually end the case, which is not true for most discovery. Sure. So I actually think they have – Theoretically, they actually have space for a 1292B certification, uh, it, but it's really going to just be up to Judge Chutkin. She's going to have discretion to shut that down if she wants to. Yeah, although she probably – I mean, let's be let's be frank. She's probably going to grant certification, and this will go on further. Now, yeah. I, would, I would say – I mean, I could imagine the D.C. Circuit moving pretty quickly. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we will be hassling them to please do so. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, we'll see what happens – What. What else is there to say about it at this point? I mean, she seems poised to rule against them. We think there will be a little mini battle over 1292B certification. And then the whole thing may just go repeat cycle at the D.C. Circuit. Anything else? Three months, man. Three months. It'll be so. Yeah, this is gonna go on for a while longer. We, I mean, how many episodes of our podcast have we talked about this case? Well, it goes back to September because I remember we were having the yes. uh, role of the courts in yes. National Security Cases Conference when this started, and, was, and, and the news broke during the afternoon. We've been talking about it since uh, mid-September. Listeners, I'm very sorry. I, I'm sure that when you thought you were signing up for the National Security Law Podcast, you were signing up for something more than the ACLU versus Mattis weekly update. I, I disagree. I think this is like exactly the kind of uh, <laughs> you know legal doctrinal detail stuff that um, people who sign up for something like this probably – it's either this or the movie reviews. And between the two, it's got to be this. Yeah, our movie reviews are certainly on lock, and, and our and our sports predictions. Our sports predictions. Oh, I can't wait to get I mean, back my, into that. My Buccaneers, I, my Raiders Buccaneers Super Bowl is still Ooh, yeah. you know, really looking good. That's uh, I don't know the Raiders. Yeah. Um, all right, so uh, let's talk about the Somalia story. Yeah. The New York Times ran on Sunday. This is which Charlie has gotten Savage. by the way, I think like no attention. Well, the here's the problem in 2017. Like nothing can get any attention except for things that are uh, obviously political. Yeah, yeah, we are. Po- po- the NFL is giving way to politics as as sort of the the only thing people can talk about. Yeah. Well, and it is. I mean, listen, it is it is special election day in Alabama. Oh my goodness! I know it's amazing. We actually managed to go this long without commenting on that one. Let's try to go further. Uh, <laughs> Somalia. Um, you, you don't think that yesterday's Fox News poll was a false flag operation? I don't know what the poll. Well, I don't. Oh. I don't. I don't watch much cable Fox, news. Fox News released a poll that had um, uh, Doug Jones, the Democratic candidate up 10 points. Wait, Fox did? Fox well, did. So that was a sort of a alarm the voters, so that's people the, so, out there. So the question is, was that real or was that a false flag? Like, you know. I, I thought that I thought the, the, the general view was that more is up four or five points. I think that's the general view. But, but I also thought that we figured out during the last election that polls aren't that reliable. Yeah, but I mean, I don't know what. There's not reliable and then there's having Jones up 10 points. Yeah, that's a squirrely figure, but we'll see. All right, we'll anyway. see. All right. Um, Okay, so by, what, by the time some folks listen to this, they'll know the answer. That's true. <laughs> that's you heard it here true. first <laughs> or last. Okay. Um, so in Somalia, what's going on? This is a complicated story, Steve, because it, it it's really I, I'm sure in journalism they have a name for these sorts of things where you check back in with an ongoing storyline, rather like us and ACLV Mattis. Um, Charlie and Eric have been following uh, for for many years this uh, what I would describe as the Obama administration attempt to wrap a policy framework, a, ra- uh, uh, a default policy framework around the use of force in areas other than the very overt active combat zones like Afghan- traditionally listed as Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, um, even though the grounds for treating Afghanistan in particular as different somehow from what we do lately in Somalia or what we've often done in Yemen, it's not always so clear. But anyways, it's the idea that you've got your quote-unquote real hostility zones geographically, and then you've got all the other places where we nonetheless also use lethal force against al-Qaeda, the Taliban, or associated forces, Somalia being one such place. Obama had um, the PPG, the Presidential Policy Guidance, um, which set in place a bunch of policy constraints 
that uh, were all premised against the backdrop of an important legal claim, which is in the Obama administration, like the Bush administration, and now like the Trump administration, the claim was there is a borderless armed conflict with al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and associated forces, that the law of armed conflict applies. That means you can attack the people you've identified as combatants. That means collateral damage rules, the whole nine yards. But, but outside these designated zones of active hostilities, as a matter of policy discretion, um, certain constraints would apply. One, uh, near certainty that there will be no collateral damage. So not taking advantage of the proportionality uh, flexibility that law of armed conflict otherwise would provide. Yeah. Uh, two, uh, under Obama, that, that there's a threat to American lives, uh, that that's what you're, you're responding to. Uh, also, uh, sort of a, a sort of a hierarchical decision making about um, screening decisions, uh, you know, seeking authority back from Washington rather than pushing it down to commanders in the field about when certain strikes can be carried out, and maybe allowing uh, input or having input from other agencies outside the military. Um, so many months ago, Charlie and Eric began writing about the Trump administration's. Um, predictable plan to walk some of that back. Right. Um, and we talked about it, I think, when they first started. Yeah, absolutely. About I think back in October, um, the PPG would give way to the PSP. Love that. Um, very Washington of them. The PSP would be the, quote, principles, standards, and procedures governing these operations. And as this article from Sunday reminds us, in October, Trump signed the PSP uh, and made that the new policy. It, and, and one of the interesting questions, and, and you and I talked a lot about it at the time, and a bunch of us wrote about it, it's not that different. It's really not that different. Um, and there's some nuggets, though, in this weekend's Somalia story that are worth flagging. So, so one of the things you have to understand about Somalia is that Trump has already designated Somalia to be a zone of active hostilities. It's been put into the bucket from right. the White House perspective. It's been put into the bucket with Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq. That's a pretty big deal. And it's, it's sort of amazing that the public, you know, doesn't kind of yawns at all this. It's a big deal. But then again, maybe it's not a big deal. Um, this article, I think, reveals for the first time, maybe it was out there before, uh, but the commander of AFRICOM, the commander in charge of military operations in theater, though under the... Uh, Trump designation of Somalia as an area of active combat operations uh, no longer would be subject to the requirement of holding back on attacks unless you're near certain there will be no civilian hostilities. He decided civilian to, casualties. Civilian casualties. Yes, sorry. Um, he decided as a matter of policy, he through his rules of engagement for his command would keep that standard. And now we're told there's a a new under the PSP, there's a new rule that instead of a near certainty standard, it's now a reasonable certainty standard. But it's not clear this actually changes anything in Somalia, and it's possible that the commander may still have the original strict rule, mm -hmm. maybe this rule, maybe no, no rule at all. But as far as we know, last time last time we have some reporting on this, um, the the uh, commander's interest in minimizing the strategic cost the strategic harms that follow from civilian casualties had led him to insist upon this constraint anyways. Um, the other sort of thing that clearly emerges from the story is that DOD has prepared a two-year operational plan for operations in Somalia. And what's interesting about that is the idea is let's leave this alone. Let's, let's adopt this plan and leave it in place for a couple of years and don't have such constant second guessing of the plan. Wait and see how the conditions develop under that plan and then after two years, when it is time to, to consider the results, have it be a DOD-only process. And I think that's the nugget in the story that really stands out. It kind of goes with the grain of a sense that uh, the administration is, this administration is very eager to push things down to the discretion level of the military, which, um, you know, it's interesting because it also means the White House will be able to criticize more if right. and when things go wrong. Right. But it also fits the theme of, you know, don't have White House micromanagement, civilian micromanagement, uh, military decision making, empower the commanders. This goes with that vein. Um, any other insights on the story, Steve? You know, I, no, other than just to say, I mean, I think it's worth I mean, you you mentioned something, you mentioned this uh, uh, before we were in our in our deep and extensive preparation for today's show um, <laughs> that there's a new sort of reference to um, U.S. forces being stationed in Lebanon right under a war powers letter. And I just I, I don't mean to tie these together. Lebanon, Somalia, not the same thing. But I do think that it is worth keeping folks um, 
focus on just how wide-ranging the theater of hostilities from the government's own perspective still is, right, under the 2001 AUMF, and what that at least potentially means for uses of force, for potentials for civilian casualties, you know, that, that this is still very much a, a wide and potentially, Bob, even expanding geographic theater. Oh, I think that Africa is, is, is all about that. Um, you know, on, on the Lebanon thing, I should say, I'm, I'm not sure that was actually the first time that, that the War Powers Resolution letter has mentioned that we have uh, troops there. It's entirely possible it's been that way. First time I noticed it. How about that? Yeah, it's the first I'm, time I noticed I'm, I'm, I'm it. I'm happy well. to say that I am. I have been ignorant until right. this point. And in, in case listeners are saying like, "Wait, what the heck? What's going on? Do we have, did we send the Marines back to Beirut?" <laughs> no, no, no. These, there's a hundred, one hundred uh, identified in the latest War Powers Resolution. One hundred U.S. forces stationed somewhere in Lebanon conducting ISIS support, ISIS counter ISIS operations, support activities, yep. and who knows? You know, that could be something very minor. Yep. Um, in any event, there's no question that AFRICOM is, is an emergent theater, especially as the uh, territorial footprint of the Islamic State continues to decrease um, in Iraq. With Iraq just this past week, the government declaring that basically they've got 100% control of their territory now. Uh, yes and no. What it, what it means there, of course, is that we're shifting into the presumed uh, insurgency phase rather yeah, than the totally. territorial control phase. But you're right. Um, this is a recurring theme for us. There's a geographic scope issue that's not really a legal issue, and it's, and I want to underscore this, it is not different from how things were in recent years under the Obama administration no. or under Bush before that. No, but, but you know, it, it underscores, I think, the continuing frustration on my part, at least, that Congress is so studiously, or I, I, sh- I should say, that Congress is so at least outwardly, right, indifferent to having all of this operate under the aegis of a 16 and a half year old statute, right? That that the more time goes on and the great, the, the more afield the, con- the theaters expand, right? The more, I think, incumbent it should have become upon Congress to sit down at the table and actually revisit the underlying scope of use of force authorization. Well, so this is a great segue to Bill Castle's speech. Uh, tell us what's going on here. Oh, real quick, you, you mentioned earlier, um, acting general counsel of DOD. I noticed in his speech, he says specifically he's, quote, Performing the duties of the general counsel, Steve. Is this oh, one of these vacancies yes, act things where yes. he, he the time has run out? The so he time can't has run be... out. He can no longer. So I actually I erred at the top of our show by referring to him as the acting general counsel. Legally, I think he is simply the principal deputy general counsel. Okay, so we need, first of all we need a name. So you got you've got the people who are the actual office holders, and then you have the acting fill-in-the-blank office. Right. And now, because of the uh, either— The Federal the, Vacancies Reform Act of 1998, which imposes a 210-day limit on how long someone can hold— So the whole purpose of the VRA is to—well, I shouldn't say the whole purpose. One of the many purposes of the VRA—we should talk to Ann O'Connell, who's actually literally writing a book about it—is um, to limit perpetual acting— Right, because holders. that circumvents the checking function of the Senate Correct. and confirming officers. Correct. And what's happening, of course, the Trump administration, in part on purpose, in part through uh, inefficacy and yeah. inertia, there's this endless number of, of appointed offices that aren't filled. Yep. Uh, and the DOD general counsels, one of them, and, and there's some there's some congressional blame to go here, I'm sure, as well. Some, but so, I mean, but most of these offices just don't have nominees waiting for them. So so here we got the DOD general counsel's position. We've we've gone past the time limits of the Vacancies Reform Act, and it turns out, well, all that changes is it gets more cumbersome to describe the function of the acting person. It's the same person still acting, but now instead of saying he's the acting general counsel, we have to say he's performing the duties of the general counsel. So I think we should call these the performing fill-in-the-blank officers. So well, he's the performing general counsel. I mean, but he's really the deputy general counsel. And, that, and the reason why that matters is because um, there's actually, I think, a meaningful difference between the uh, both the formal authority and the practical sort of interagency authority, right, of someone who is acting in the capacity of the sort of director of the office versus someone who is simply by default Right, right. The sort of the 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 next person down the list of of succession. So, so do we not have a GC or a deputy GC at DOD? So, the, no, I think he's deputy. I think oh, he's, he's principal deputy, deputy GC. Yeah. yeah, he's only the principal deputy GC. Isn't that is that the top of I the think DC? The top There's not yeah. actually a separate figure who is not. I thought I thought he yeah has no I Bob think you're Taylor. right I right. thought he has Bob Taylor's job okay you're right okay so there's multiple deputy GCs he's the 
the principal, the right. P. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, what doesn't make sense is the inability to fill these offices. Although, if you're stuck with somebody, Bill Castle's not a bad listen, person to be this, stuck I, with. I mean, listen, I, you know, Bill Castle's a fantastic lawyer. I have no problem with him. I think the point is this is, uh, you know, wholly apart yeah. from the substance the, of the Give him the nomination, Mr. Well, President. Let's so, get this guy confirmed. And, and you know, I mean, I, I recognize that at least with regard to the State Department, some of this may be a conscious effort to the downsize, State yeah. you know, to downsize, a, to coercively downsize the State Department, although yeah. it's a preposterous way to do that. Right. Um, but with DOD, that's not the mission. It's just business. come on, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, how can it be? How can anyone disagree that that DOD is a place where we need these offices filled? There you go. All right. Well, so it's in good hands now. Bill's in there and and performing sort of. the function. <laughs> and so uh, uh, he gave a speech on the AUMFs, and uh, you feel that it didn't really introduce anything too newsworthy. I mean, did you see anything that sort of piqued your fancy? No, let, you know, to give a quick rundown. So the structure of the speech was to outline some basics about the Trump administration view on the 2001 AUMF, including associated forces, and then the 2002 AUMF, and then sort of some shots across the bow of Congress and, and those who advocate for uh, – replacing those with the new AMF, kind of giving some early signals of possible administration positions. And mm-hmm. I'd, I'd say that, you know, mostly this is continuity. So on the 2001 AMF, he emphasizes something that's been the view of every administration for many years now. It doesn't have a geographic limit, doesn't have sunsets, does include associated forces. He gave the same definition of associated forces that the Obama administration adopted, um, says that the Islamic State is an associated force because it is just a renamed al-Qaeda in Iraq. All that is is pure continuity. Um, he emphasizes, he goes out of his way to say, by the way, let's not forget that Congress keeps funding all these counter-IS operations. And, and so the, the, the suggestion is there's an element of ratification through the funding mechanism, all of which sounds uh, predictable and right and continuous. Yeah, the, so the only thing, um, you know, my, my, my Just Security co-editor, Ryan Goodman, was at the event and actually has a write-up about it on Just Security today. And Ryan, by the way, also reports that apparently Carter Page was at this event. <laughs> sure. I, I, you know, I don't even know. What on to say on to behalf that. of whom? Well, <laughs> you'd like to know that, wouldn't you? Anyway, so I think the second part of Bill's speech does, I think, expose a little bit of daylight between the Trump and Obama administrations, not on the scope of current authorities at all, as you just said, but rather on what they would, you know, either like or at least be willing to see Congress do, mm-hmm. right? And so the Obama administration, I think, quite. Um, correctly, and I think I, courageous is strong, but like quite, I think laudably. That's that's less than. I can't laud- wait to hear what it is. Laudable is lower than courageous, right? Um, right yeah, yeah, true. Right, um, endorsed repealing the 2001 AUMF in exchange for right an updated and revised one. Yeah, I would definitely say laudable. They're not courageous. I said laudable. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm in agreement. <laughs> um, but also was willing to accept even a sunset on the new AUMF. Right, the the notion of oh, revisiting yeah, it, it. It wanted one. Right, yeah. um, and you know I think there are there are lines in Bill's speech from last night that suggest that the Trump administration will be opposed. Oh, absolutely. To both of those. No, I think that's a big difference, and it's it's actually so. Here's one where I'm sympathetic. Uh, I'm on record sympathetic with the idea of a sunset, and yet I'm also sympathetic with some of the things Bill was saying against sunsets. But let me explain why I think they're they're two different deals. Um, Putting a sunset in an AUMF is, I think, when at least when I think about that being a useful device, I think of it because I think it uh, is important for Congress to refresh and put a fresh stamp of congressional support in clear accountability for the members of Congress in owning these operations. That, to me, is, is, is one of the key virtues. It's a forcing function. There is certainly no, to me, no implication that you put a sunset in because you want it to stop and be done on the date that that sunset arrives. Right. As, as if the, the uh, presumption is we definitely don't need it beyond that. We'll be done. Operations end. That, that's, a, that's something that from a policy perspective, of course, sounds terrible. I think that what Bill was channeling in his speech was the um, much discussed Trump administration preference for uh, conditions-based determination on when we uh, pull out of certain countries or when we adjust operations there. You see that as well with uh, the Somalia thing, but it's been a big part of their Afghanistan policy. And that stands in contrast to the 
time demarcated approach that was often characteristic, not always, but sometimes characteristic of the Obama administration. From a policy perspective, I'm, I'm entirely on board with the Trump approach to conditions-based determinations on policy. I don't think that means the AUMF can't have a sunset, though. I think that's it's mixing apples and oranges. Yes, of course, there's some bleed over. But I think in a sunset on an AUMF, with the expectation that Congress can and will do its job and renew things if it should, that's not the same thing as telling the Taliban, hey, if you can just hold out to the day the AUMF sunset arrives, uh, America's leaving. That's different. I think that's right. And so I guess the question is, can you split the baby, right? Can you have sort of a, you know, um, a sort of an escalating sunset situation, right, where there comes a point where the if con Congress has to start thinking about a new resolution, but forces can still be left in for some period of time after the clock expires, right? I mean, that's like I, a longer version of the war powers resolution kind of, approach. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting because I guess, you know, it, it highlights the difficulty because the, those who are focused on the policy set, and of course that that's central. Yeah. Um, those who are looking at this from the point of view, what's the message to the Taliban? Does it give them a date on the calendar where they can just think, all right, all I got to do is outweigh the Americans till you know 2020, and then they have to leave unless somehow their Congress passes a statute. If it really, if the better judgment is that's the effect of the sunset, then then I would, what I'd prefer to see is some sort of weak sunset that requires debate but yeah. doesn't actually put in the default of terminating the bill. Although all I'll say is for all those who are, you know. I would just tie together two two different conversations here. Um, for all the folks who complain about how a sunset is like saying, you know, we're abandoning our troops, we're going to get out, you know, it's, right, it's right. the enemy knows they just have to hold on for another day. Look at 702 reauthorization, right? Does anyone actually think Congress is not going to reauthorize 702 by the end of this month? No, well, right? You, you, there, there was a sunset there. The whole point was not because the program was going to end on a date certain, but because Congress would have to at least revisit and reauthorize the program. I think that that makes sense for people like us. I think when we think about what's the messaging that filters through to insurgents and to the Taliban, I don't know that you can count on that kind of parsing. But also, 702 may or may not get renewed in the next 19 days. Oh, come we'll on. See. There's no way they don't. There's uh, the, the reason The reason I say that you, you never know is think about sequestration. That was not supposed to actually happen. Yeah. It was supposed to be so bad that somebody All would right, step It's 2017. In. We should never say never. I never just think, exactly. But my point is just that even if 702 is not, even if something happens, like the government shuts down, all hell breaks loose, whatever, 702 is getting reauthorized at some point, right? Could there be a glitch where it goes off the where it goes yeah, off the January, books for February. a month or two? Yeah. Sure. My point is just that you know the same folks often when I'm sparring, right, um, who say you know you can't do a sunset because that would be you know because there's no guarantee Congress would actually act. Right. No, of course they almost certainly they will. I point at 702 and say, look, right, come on. Well, your case will be stronger if Congress will just act in the next 19 days. Well, I'd like, yeah, although we, we, again, we disagree about how they should act. But now, there's a second bit of daylight, I think, between the Obama administration and the Trump administration that's revealed in Bill Castle's speech. Um, and it has to do with whether in the course of creating a new AUMF that's fresh and that names the Islamic State, yeah. uh, whether in doing so you should do some housekeeping and get rid of the 2001 and 2002s. Um, it's interesting. He, said, he makes the following argument. He says, no. Don't do it. It's fine to have a fresh one, but it needs to be an additional one, not a replacement. So he's not saying uh, repeal and replace. He's saying add. Um, I'm not persuaded by his argument. Uh, so Bill argues that on one hand, there's no, he says there's literally no affirmative case for actually getting rid of the old ones. So there's nothing gained by doing so. As to what will be lost by doing so, he says he is not just worried, but certain that there would be harmful unintended consequences if it's repeal and replace. I got to say, on, on that matter, um, you know, I don't see why you can't draft a new AUMF that doesn't say very clearly that nothing in the new AMF shall be construed right. to reduce the scope yep. of authority that existed under the old ones. Right. And I think that's easily drafted around. So I don't think there's actually... There didn't have to be any risk right. of versus, that sort of harm. Versus the flip side risk, right? Which is if you're adding, right? And you know, let's say that in let's say that the new one has a sunset, and let's say that it expires, right? <laughs> and then you're back to status quo. We thought, right? Yeah. So, so what are you accomplishing? So here's an interesting question. So, like, so what is this all about? Like, what are we really concerned about, or is it all just sort of all of us are being lawyers, worried and not worried, or impressed or not impressed with what we could accomplish with drafting? Maybe the answer is in his description of the O2 AUMF, which always gets left out of these conversations. The Iraq AUMF 
stuff. Um, and this is this is arguably consistent with the Obama administration, but I, I thought it was interesting to see it stated so clearly. In talking about what the meaning of the 2002 Iraq AUMF is, he says quite fairly that it is primarily it was primarily about Saddam Hussein's regime, of course. Then he goes on to say, and again, this is not different from Obama, that it that it has a kind of a carryover, an additional aspect that that outlasts the the fall of the Baathist. And here's the quote: It's also about quote helping to establish a stable democratic Iraq and responding to terrorist threats emanating from Iraq. Um, now, that's interesting. We think about terrorist threats emanating from Iraq. If you just sort of took that in the abstract as separate from the 2001 AMF, then in theory, that could be terrorist threats that are not associated forces of al-Qaeda or the Taliban, right? That could pick up some other future group. There could be some real significance, right, uh, to that interpretation of the O2 AMF. And more generally, it's, it's, an, it's a basis for always having that footprint back in Iraq. Um, I think there is a lot of DOD concern about not losing that and being subject to something that might be al-Qaeda, Taliban, Islamic State specific. And there's always that that probability that whatever the jihadi groups of the moment are that have ties back to those mm -hmm. groups, that the jihadi groups that are threatening the United States and its allies five, 10 years from now, maybe we'll have broken that tie sufficiently. And I think that part of the anxiety about getting rid of 01 and 02 is, it, it just seems like you're, if you get a fresh AUMF that's maybe more carefully drafted, maybe you'll lose some of that flexibility. Yeah, although I guess I'd prefer that the DOD in that situation go to Congress and say, here's the more tailored statute that we need. Exactly. I, no, I agree. All right. Um, speaking of 2002, should we pivot to our, our last substantive topic of the day? Yeah. Uh, so the, the military new... commissions is determined to show us that they're not just in the business of having these uh, procedural fiascos with arrested Marines. We're still and, here. And, you know, there, there's actually stuff going on by way of moving forward in the cases. In this case, there's been a development, Steve, in the charges that center around Jamaa Islamia and in Hambali, uh, it's, it's erstwhile leader. In this case, uh, back in June, um, the, the, a prosecutor had uh, preferred, is, is that the right phrase? I think so. Preferred charges uh, that were specific to Hambali. Now what we've got is what I would recognize as a superseding indictment, if you will, uh, being more specific, a set of seven or eight charges, I forget which it was, against Hambali and two of his colleagues, Mohammed Farik bin Amin and Mohammed Nazir bin Lep, these two Malaysian guys who were JI operatives. And Steve, I think it's fair to say that basically it's a slew of charges about the Bali bombing of 2002 yep. and the Marriott Hotel bombing in Jakarta in 2003. Yep. And and they, the the different charges are because you've got you know murder in violation of the law of war, meaning killing civilians and targeting civilians. You've got attempted murder, and you've got a, a variety of spinoff charges. The only one that's actually different is the last one that's an accessory after the fact charge against the the two fellows I just named for helping Hambali escape arrest, which is kind of fascinating that they tacked that on there, yeah. but not interesting to us. What's interesting, I guess, is the Jakarta bombing and the Bali bombing. Uh, what issues does this raise, Steve, about the scope of the armed conflict? I mean, we're back to Nashri, right? So, so you know, folks will remember from the Al Nashri case that there are two different questions. Nashri, who is, I think, best known for um, his alleged involvement in the USS Cole bombing from October 2000, Bobby was also charged with the bombing of the MV Limburg, right. a French tanker, right? I think in the Gulf of Aden mm -hmm. um, in 02 or 03. And in both contexts, Nashri has argued, you know, these are outside um, the scope of the armed conflict between the U.S. and al-Qaeda. Therefore, they're outside the Military Commission Act's own definition of hostilities, um, which is a jurisdictional constraint on the military commissions. So is it fair to say that when we talk about scope of the armed conflict, there's both a temporal dimension and a uh, sort of substantive dimension? Right. I, yeah. I wouldn't say geographic. Right. It's not geographic necessarily, although that enters into it. So just to, to, to flesh that out, um, with Hambali and these sort of Jama'a Islamia charges that we're talking about here, these aren't about the temporal dimension because this no. is 2002 yep. and 2003. There's no there's no question that by that point, the U.S. was involved in a non-international armed conflict with al-Qaeda. And so then you get into the scope of the conflict question. Now, as soon as you've got J.I. in the fact pattern, there's an initial question. Jamaa Islamiyah, what was its organizational relationship to al-Qaeda at that time? Um, and if you think that it was at least enough to bring it within the scope of 
in some circumstances within the scope of the conflict. Is that true for all of their operations in all places and against all targets? Or is it only true insofar as their operations in some way had a nexus with the United States? Um, and, And depending on how one draws that circle, one could kind of go the broad route and say, Look, J.I. was part of the Al-Qaeda network. Whatever J.I. was doing, all the all the attacks against whatever targets, they're all part of that war. Or do you have some sort of more nuanced approach that says J.I. activities targeting the United States or U.S. persons, that would count. But J.I. activities targeting civilians of other nationalities, um, that doesn't count. And, and all that's separate. You have to answer those questions as sort of a legal matter. And then you got to go look at this particular fact pattern and assess how that doctrinal answer maps on to the Jakarta fact pattern and the Bali fact pattern. So I guess the the, the two headlines here for me, right? One is this takes, we already knew about Hambali because of June, but this takes two more detainees and moves them from the not cleared, not military commission category at Guantanamo into the military commission category, which is a a relevant metric for those of us who actually keep track of such things. That's right. Um, Two, once again, right, we have a military commission case that if it's approved by the convening authority, Harvey Rishikoff, he has the power to kibosh it, right? Um, If it's approved, it will go to trial with all these baked in jurisdictional questions. And that trial will be in the year 2074. And the appeal, right, which could hold that those are, in fact, fatal jurisdictional defects in the trial will take years after that, once again, because of the D.C. Circuit's Al-Nashri 2 decision, right, on not deciding these kinds of subject matter jurisdiction challenges before the trial happens. You know, another interesting fact about this uh, that Carol Rosenberg's reporting, I think, highlighted, the uh, the sheet, the charge sheet, yeah. there's a box to indicate whether they're seeking the death penalty. The, the prosecutor, at least, didn't check the box. Yep. Now, as I understand it, uh, the convening authority, Harvey, has can, the power to. He can he can approve this as a death penalty case, but I, I you know query whether he would. That would be a very odd move, right? right. To, if the prosecutor himself is not seeking a capital charge, I don't know why the convening authority would no. be in any hurry to supersede that. So let's speculate, since we you know, have no accountability. Let's speculate. Did they? This is a murder of civilians case. Why not seek the death penalty? Is it possible that this reflects a hangover from the learned, the absence of available learned counsel to come be involved in these cases? It very well may be, and also a notion that um, some of the pretrial, whatever is the ultimate resolution of the learned counsel problem in the Nashri case, some of the pretrial issues that have beset the 9-11 trial, the Nashri case, et cetera, are specific to the fact that those are capital. And that perhaps there are, I don't want to say corners that can be cut, but there are sort of ways to expedite the pretrial yeah, process no if, it's not, if, the, if, if the death penalty is not on the table. So if that's all true, then is it fair to say that because this one's being kept and only because it's being kept in the military commission system, these guys won't face the death penalty? Whereas if it had been tried in an Article Three court, it almost certainly would be a death penalty case. Um, that's I extraordinary. Mean, we, we've talked about this before, right? I mean, we've talked about how there's an irony where at least some of the military commission cases are producing far shorter sentences, right? I mean, Hamdan. If Hamdan had been prosecuted for material support, fifteen years at least, yeah. right? He got he got basically time served plus six months, yeah. right? So um, I just I find this. I mean. Th- I don't find this a shocking development. Like, you know, while we have, I mean, while we have a military commission system, you know, they're going to try to figure out how many of the detainees they can pigeonhole into that sure. system. But the idea that it's supposed to, that that's the tougher way to right. do it is just is just belied by the record. All right, we've we've covered our topics. Let's quickly move now to something much less serious and bad and movies that we love. This is this is your invitation to uh, clear your podcast queue, go to something else. But if you're if if all that weighty talk has you down, let us cheer you up with some serious frivolity, really embarrassing movies that we love. Uh, who goes first? I think you go first. I got to go first. This is my idea. Yeah. All right. I, you pitched this. I haven't seen this one in so long, but I used to love this movie. I even, this is a super embarrassing ambition. I even went out and found the CD because I like the soundtrack. It's a Kevin Costner film. The Postman? No. Oh. No. no it's, it's, it's pretty obscure. It's called Revenge. Oh. Have you ever seen this film? I have not. Okay. Revenge is a story. Uh, Kevin Costner plays Kevin Costner because that's the only role he plays in any film. It's Kevin Costner as himself. Um, and he's he's buddies with this sort of this crime lord in Mexico, 
Um, and he goes down to visit him and, and meets the crime lord's wife, who, who's they have an immediate attraction. They have an affair and they think they've gotten away with it. And they don't, and things go horribly wrong, and in, in the whole thing becomes, well, first of all, something horrible happens. I'm not going to go into the details in case this inspires you to try to find, I don't know if they carry this in Netflix, try to see revenge. Um, but there are themes of revenge that are played out, and it's, it's, a, it's a good, fun film, at least as I recall it. But it is a Kevin Costner, and I'm embarrassed to have just owned it. So how about you? So I, I don't know if this is I, I don't know if this will count as a bad film, although I think it really is. Um, I am a big fan of Bad Boys Two. <laughs> I think I've even mentioned it on this podcast. Uh, you before. may have mentioned that before. Right. Tell so me more. So Bad Boys itself, I think, stands alone as a perfectly lovely, fun, you know, buddy cop yeah. Martin Lawrence Will Smith action movie. Bad Boys Two is so preposterous, <laughs> um, but I just there's something about the Will Smith Martin Lawrence dynamic. I, I would watch Bad Boys Three. I would watch Bad Boys Four. Like I just um, and throw in that the whole sort of last sort of plot arc of the movie is about them trying to get to Guantanamo, right? Because they're trying to sort of run away from these you know Cubans who are trying to kill them. Um, it's just it's. I, Karen makes fun of me for this. I like I like movies that are well done when lots of things blow up. Right? Okay, all and right. so there are plenty of bad movies that I think fall into that category. Yeah, yeah, that you just opened up a whole wide uh, world of bad topics. boys too. I think is very high on my list. All right, so I have a, I have a second embarrassing film. It's sort of from that same generation. This is a Rob Lowe and James Spader vehicle. Wow, uh, bad influence. You ever seen this one? I have not. I'm showing my age a little bit. These are all like early 80s or mid 80s deals. Um, James Spader is this sort of meek, mild-mannered, I think he's an accountant or whatever he is. He's an office guy and he's getting pushed around by his boss and he's just not in charge of his life. And I I forget how they set it up because, again, it's been a long time. But Rob Lowe basically is like a con artist who shades into something much more violent. But it is like, you know, it's classic Rob Lowe. this handsome, charming guy who somehow gets into James Spader's life. And he's a bad influence on him. And he begins to lead well him done. down a dark path. That At first, it seems like he's liberating him and really getting him to be uh, a, a more assertive person. But then it gets uglier and uglier. Um, it is, it's a pretty compelling film. It's, it's part of that spate of Rob Lowe movies from the 80s right before yep. his big downfall, yep. Yep. which preceded his big revival. Return, revival, yeah. right. Um, all right. So my, speaking of, of pretty big movies where lots of things blow up, right? Oblivion. I don't even know that. Tom that? Cruise, science fiction movie, uh, dystopian, future, alien. And it's movie. good? Um, it's, it's so bad that it's good. Oh, okay. So, so I have a bit of a personal attachment to this. So I, I taught, in, um, I taught uh, an exchange as part of an exchange program um, at Ritz American University in Kyoto in the summer of 2012. Um, and Kyoto is an amazing city. It is like the opposite of American. Oh, I love Kyoto. All the shrines. It's, it's incredible how many neat little and all unique. I loved it. After 10 weeks, I was ready for a dose of pure Americana, right? <laughs> um, and actually, I mean, so much so that I even ended up doing a, a sort of field trip to Guam and the Northern Marianas because those were the closest, you know, wow. U.S. territories. It's actually only a three-hour flight from Osaka. But um, to sort of, you know, s- s- get my Americana fix one night, I went to the big local movie theater, which was playing Oblivion. Um, and, you know, it was in English, right? I mean, Japanese subtitles, but whatever. Um, and it was just like, it was so gripping in its powerful stupidity that I just, I, 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 every time that movie's on, I watch it. Was it, was it visually arresting? Is it's it... visually arresting. The plot is at least somewhat interesting. There's a totally obvious twist, right? That is like, you know, if you know the three rules of all science fiction movies, right? Yeah. Two of them are satisfied. Wait, what are the three rules oh, of gosh, all Oh gosh, I'm about fiction. to blow this. Yes. Um, so... Or at least give me the two that are satisfied. Right. So, well, I don't want to spoil Oblivion. Oh, yeah, okay, that's true. You know, we'll, that, right. we'll come back well, to that. Let me just say, it is totally obvious, right, from about 10 yeah. minutes into the movie where it's going. And it's still, it's pretty, it's fun, it's, like, dramatic. So that, it kind of, your description sort of sounds like Avatar a little bit. Yeah. Where it's, like, visually, like, ah, oh, this is, that's a fun, at least on an IMAX, it was fun watching Avatar. Right. I mean, people although that, the right, plot people, itself was I, just I wonder terrible. if folks would dispute Bad Boys 2 and Oblivion as actually bad movies, right? Interesting. Um, what about Avatar? Is it a bad movie that's... The problem I have with, so the problem I have with putting Avatar in the bad movie category because it is just dances with wolves in space um, <laughs> is that it was such a you know sort of 
um, innovation technologically, right? And yeah. from a filmmaking, like Gravity, yeah. right? You know, yeah. I, I am not one of those who thought Gravity was a fantastic movie, yeah. except that it was visually stunning. It was all one shot, right? Uh, was, like a continuous shot? It was It was pretty remarkable. I don't yeah. know if it was all one shot. But it was I seem like, to recall, yeah. I, I actually haven't seen yeah. it, but I remember hearing that it was, it's actually, there's there's no cut, huh. which is amazing. That's, I mean, that's, that's even true. more amazing. I mean, so, so, so I guess the question is, can a movie be bad if it represents a remarkable sort of filmmaking achievement, but the actual sort of substance of the movie is is hard? Yeah, actually, I would say no, probably. That's not officially a bad movie. It's it's a one-dimensional movie. So Avatar. Yeah. yeah. Which apparently they're making a sequel. You know, I feel like they talk about that all the time. I don't really understand why. Yeah. Unless there's some technological cinema, cinematographic uh, development that they can pursue. All right. One more bad movie. Um, okay. I didn't come prepare for this. So let you me, only had two? Well, you know, most movies I watch were great. Uh, uh, I'll give you one. Here's This goes definitely under the heading of guilty pleasure. And I wonder, I haven't seen it in many years, and I wonder if it would um, sort of ring a little... Uh, you know, exploitive or whatever, but I used to love, as a kid, loved Zorro the Gay Blade with George Hamilton. You ever seen that? No. It Okay, so it is a, you know, George Hamilton had all these early 80s films, late 70s, early 80s films, like Love at First Bite, where he, mm-hmm. you know, you sort of pick a genre, and then George Hamilton plays, like, the you know, the, the main character, and it's always kind of the same, the sort of the, the bumbling, hapless, handsome you know, uh, hero. One, he's a, he's he's a Dracula. This one, he's Zorro. But the shtick in the film, it's kind of Mel Brooksian, is he's got a twin brother who who pl- plays as as a flamboyant. Uh, went off to join the Navy, and now he's come back right when the Zorro story is unfolding. And in this twist in the Zorro story, uh, Zorro gets hurt, so his, his his very flamboyant brother steps in. Doesn't like wearing all the black that Zorro wears, and he wears more colorful costumes. Um, it's very Mel Brooks-ish, although it's not a Mel Brooks movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. All right, so my last nominee is just about the stupidest sports movie I've ever seen, Necessary Roughness. Ah, that name rings a bell. Scott Bakula as the sort of quarterback who had one, the 42-year-old quarterback who has one more year of eligibility in college, right? Because oh, the Texas like State that. football team, yeah. like, they all get kicked out for cheating. Oh, so he gets to come in as the scabs? Right, right like a replacement player, right? Um, <laughs> Kathy Ireland is the kicker, right? Oh, uh, um, yeah, yeah, it's ringing a bell. It's like, you know, all this. It's Anyway, um, it, it is a stupid, stupid movie. But if it's on TV, I will watch it. All right, I, I have now got a list of things to go watch during the break, and since we're not teaching for a few weeks, uh, that'll be that'll be something I can fill my. And also, with. and it also has the iconic, you know, Kathy Ireland line: "Welcome to football, welcome to foot, welcome to ball." And if you uh, haven't, I'll, I'll leave it to uh, our listeners to fill in. So, the, wait, so now you brought to mind another good one: uh, Goldie Hawn, Wildcats. Oh gosh, <laughs> we should we should quit while we're behind. Yes, yes, yes. All right, All so right. Um, we will, I think, both be back next week, right, as we yep. procrastinate for our uh, uh, log van. Yeah, your, your other podcasts may be taking a lot of time off, but we're going to be here for you for the most part. Because we mean, have no life. Yeah. <laughs> well, because why would you leave Austin? Well, I got a reply brief to write, and an exam to write, and then we have some grading to do. Well, maybe we can have some Dalmazi talk in one of our upcoming Dalmazi, that old chestnut. All right, friends, that's it. Stay safe out there. Adios.